Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. The Telegraph. The Telegraph. Podcasts. Cutting the top rate of tax just before the Labour conference wasn't just stupid, it was venal. I heard yesterday from a friend in the city that traders were calling Liz Truss daggers because Dagenham is two steps after barking. It's as close to a sterling crisis as one can get. Let's see how it pans out the last few days. What's vital now is that the government and the Bank of England are seen to be working in a coordinated and harmonious manner and not trying to outdo each other. And welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. Thank goodness for Planet Normal, Alison, because it seems Planet Earth is losing the plot. It's less than a week since the government's mini-budget, the implications of which have been anything but. Since last Friday, the pound's been on a roller coaster ride, falling to its lowest level ever, $1.03, before partially recovering. The Bank of England on Wednesday, the day we're recording Planet Normal, has stepped into the gilt market, moving from quantitative tightening back to quantitative easing. In terms of <laughs> Nora Batty's Nicker Elastic Allison, <laughs> the major analytical benchmark in your growing armoury of economic tools, the knickers were falling down and a rear guard action was needed to keep them up. <laughs> Not emergency interest rate hikes, but a technical operation to make investors view government debt as more attractive to buy. Meanwhile, Italy's elected its first female prime minister. Keir Starmer may have discovered some charisma and the Labour Party's moved to a commanding lead in some opinion polls. It's all happening on planet Earth, Alison. And all you're worried about is kitchen design. That is grossly unfair. We will return to the hot topic of the kitchen island going out of fashion. Meanwhile, we can bring you from the Planet Normal Rocket some breaking news. Uh, Mr Halligan, an economist believed to be of Irish extraction, has handcuffed himself to the railings outside of the Bank of England where he could be heard singing, It Should Have Been Me. <laughs> I've thrown myself <laughs> under the king's metaphorical horse. <laughs> Seriously, for over nine months, you have been telling Planet Normal denizens and writing in your excellent column in the Sunday Telegraph that the Bank of England was claiming inflation was transitory. How's that working out? Liam, you said that was nonsense and that they should have been raising interest rates. And now we have this calamity. Do you feel vindicated? Do you feel cross? Do you just what do you feel? It's it's been a hell of a few days, hasn't it, for you? I feel cold because the Bank of England pavement is hard on my bottom <laughs> and my little wrist is getting chaffed. <laughs> What's happening here, Alison, is that Sterling has been suffering. It's it's recovered partially. I think it is partly because of what Quasi Quateng said in his ridiculously named mini budget. But it's also, and of course, everybody wants to blame Tory tax cuts 
And we can talk about the merit or otherwise of some of those tax cuts unveiled in the mini budget on Friday. Mm. But this is also due to the Bank of England not raising interest rates enough soon enough, even on Thursday when they must have known what was in the mini budget. Yeah. The Bank of England only raised interest rates by half a percent. I say only in inverted commas because it's still a chunky rise if you've got a big mortgage or a personal loan that's on a variable rate deal, of course. But the financial markets were expecting a three-quarter percent rise at least. The Federal Reserve in the US had raised interest rates by three-quarters of a percent, as we say in the vernacular, 75 basis points twice in a row. So the dollar's getting stronger and stronger because those interest rate rises attract more international flows of finance. And then the pound gets weaker, as almost all other currencies have been getting weaker against the dollar. But rather than raise by 75 basis points at least, the bank was timid again, only raising rates by 50 basis points. And now what we've seen in the financial markets today, Wednesday, when we were recording Planet Normal, I have literally just hot-footed it from my perch outside the Bank of England. I've got a little blanket now there and everything in a sort of... (laughs) A dog on a rope. I've been in the Bank of England all day doing live commentaries for GB News and so on. What's happened today is that the Bank of England has done the first emergency measures since lockdown. We haven't seen an emergency interest rate rise. It's not got to that point yet. They're keeping that in reserve. But the Bank of England has switched from quantitative tightening QT to quantitative easing QE. Again, what does that mean? It means that after years of QE which we've been talking about a lot. That's Nora Batty's Nicker Elastic getting looser. That's the Bank of England creating money to buy bonds off investors in the market. That makes bonds more attractive because the Bank of England wants to buy them. It was switching from that to QT, which is the Bank of England selling those bonds back to the market for good financial order. That has now been reversed. It's only a few weeks old, that announcement. So they're going back to QE now in order to support the government's efforts to sell its bonds in the market so it can borrow. The Bank of England is now buying some of those bonds, returning back to the status quo ex ante. It sounds complicated and it is pretty complicated, but it seems to have worked as of this conversation The pound is up on the day, Wednesday, and in the bond markets, the 10-year gilt yield, what does that mean? Nothing about eating too many chocolates and feeling bad. The 10-year gilt yield means when the government sells money on a 10-year basis for repayment in 10 years, how much interest rate does it have to pay? That was at 4.5% a year. That's now gone back below 4%. That easing of gilt yields, that lowering of interest rates in the money market, those interest rates ripple out across the whole of the economy. If that can be sustained, that is good news for borrowers, people with mortgages, people with personal loans, and so on. So for now, at least, Alison, quite a complicated emergency intervention, but an emergency intervention nonetheless by the Bank of England. It seems to be holding the road. Early days, but fingers crossed. It's extraordinary, isn't it, to think, co-pilot, that we're really only three weeks into the new prime minister. Cabinet members have basically been holding their jobs, you know, for hardly 
any time at all. I heard yesterday from a friend in the city that traders were calling Liz Truss daggers because Dagenham is two steps after barking. (laughs) (laughs) And also, before I start asking you all the questions I'm, I'm sure Planet Normal listeners desperately need answers for, I really think that the Prime Minister should have been out front and centre these last few days waving at people, looking prominent. Someone on social media said, is Liz Truss gone into a witness protection program? She's got confidence in this growth plan. She should damn well have been out there, not hiding behind the sofa and hoping while the country kind of goes up in flames. Now, I'm not going to say that much because I think our listeners will really want, we've got one of the country's best economics experts on the rocket. So I think we just want to ask you, but Something that occurred to me, Liam, I find this really puzzling, all right? We kind of knew roughly what was going to be in that mini budget, didn't we? We'd followed what Liz Truss was saying during the leadership campaign. Truss was going to reverse Rishi Sunak's rise in national insurance. That's costing about $19 billion. Going to reverse Sunak's rise in corporation tax. That's another $19 billion. Cutting the basic rate of income tax to 19%. That's $5 billion, something, by the way, with which the Labour Party would agree. And, of course, we had this huge energy price cap, 31 billion for households, 29 billion for businesses. No one was going to argue with that because obviously we had to sort of see off the disaster of these terrible energy bills. So really the only surprise, as far as I can tell, in Quasi Quateng's plan for growth announced on Friday was abolishing the higher rate of income tax from 45p to 40p, which was going to cost a mere Two billion quid. Now, as a non-economist, I would say, as an inhabitant of Planet Normal, I would say that cutting the higher rate of tax, a tax paid by the five richest percent of people in the country about 48 hours before the start of a Labour Party conference was an act of political dumbfounding stupidity. Are are we allowed to coin the phrase kamikaze, co-pilot? I mean, what the hell were they thinking? So I guess what I'm asking you, just to sort of try and simplify that, what is it that spooked them about something that the markets should surely have known was coming? Well, what got the markets excited was what got Compo excited in Last of the Summer Wine. It was Nori Batty's <laughs> Nicker Elastic. Nick no, Elastic, no. yeah. There's a lot in what you say, Alison, that I agree with, but a couple of little tweaks here and there. You're right. Financial markets knew that Liz Truss was going to reverse corporation tax. They knew that she was going to reverse that 1.25% rise in national insurance. And she campaigned on that for months. And that was priced into financial markets. What the markets didn't know about, for sure, was the cut in the basic rate of income tax coming in next year. And they certainly didn't know about the, the cut in the top rate of tax, which, as you say, you only lose about £2 billion from that. And actually, if the cut in the top rate of tax leads to incentive effects where people work harder or spend less time you know, sheltering their money in legal tax avoidance schemes, then you can actually make money out of that tax cut. The other taxes, you had the reversal of IR35, the freelance contracting laws, that's about £2 billion. The 45p additional income tax rate cut was about two billion. Increasing the stamp duty threshold is about one and a half or two billion. Keeping the annual investment allowance 
at a million, that cost about 1.3 billion. So it's about seven or eight billion pounds of extra tax cuts, which is not huge in the grand scheme of things, certainly not enough to set off a currency crisis. So why is this happening? I think one of the reasons it is happening, everybody wants to pin it on Tory tax cuts. And I would say cutting the top rate of tax just before the Labour conference wasn't just stupid, it was venal. Yeah. It was ridiculous. It was indulgent. If you're going to do that sort of thing, do it at a time when the country's feeling flush, not when we're about to go into a serious cost of living crisis, an intensification of that cost of living crisis as the nights are drawing in. And people are literally frightened in many cases. A lot of not particularly well off, not particularly poor, but middle income, middle of the road voters are concerned deeply still about their energy bills. You're right, that two and a half grand cap, that will cost a lot of money, but nobody could complain about that because, of course, that is preventing mass non-payment of bills. Poverty. Yes, civil unrest. Destitution. So I think it was largely because, and I'll get absolutely hammered for saying this, I think the Bank of England should have been raising rates for a lot longer and a lot faster, and I think they should have done a bold 75 basis point interest rate rise on Thursday. So I think it's a combination of things. And also, I'd say this, Alison, the most important variable in terms of the finances of the British economy over the next six to 12 months, it isn't tax levels. It isn't whether or not you cut this tax or that tax. It's the price of wholesale gas. The price of wholesale gas is what really counts because the price of wholesale gas will determine whether or not that energy price cap costs us 40 billion, 60 billion, or 160 billion, or even 260 billion. That is the key variable. But Liam, that's coming down, isn't it? And it has been coming down. So it's down the best part of 50% over the last four weeks, as we've been pointing out on Planet Normal. So I think a lot of this is an enormous overreaction by the markets. I think there are a lot of people who are getting together, knowing that the government is unpopular, knowing that the whole commentariat will just lay into them because they're hated. It's no wonder they're hated by a lot of the country if they're doing things like cutting the top rate of tax at a time like this, just for the bants, if you like, as the kids say. <laughs> yeah. So it strikes me that this is about sentiment and presentation and also about the Bank of England being still even on Thursday before the mini-budget, when they must have known what was in the mini-budget, way behind the curve, not really understanding financial markets. Now, should the government have put the Bank of England in that position where they should obviously have done a 75 basis point rise to protect the currency to a degree? Because, of course, if the currency falls sharply, we import lots of inflation. No, the government shouldn't have done that. But the Bank of England shouldn't be in the position it's in either. What's vital now is that the government and the Bank of England, while the Bank of England retains its independence, are seen to be working in a coordinated and harmonious manner and not trying to outdo each other and their people in the dark not slagging their <laughs> opposite institution off to the newspapers on an anonymous basis, which could easily happen. If that starts happening, then we are in serious trouble. But for today, at least... As of Wednesday evening, when we're recording Planet Normal, we're deliberately recording it late, aren't we? Mm, we are. Because of the turmoil on financial markets. As of now, it looks as if early days, but it looks as if that Bank of England intervention tweaking the gilts market 
has held the road. We also saw, didn't we, we saw the IMF butting in, issuing what sounded very like a veiled threat. The IMF said, we don't recommend large, untargeted fiscal measures at this point, and then went on to say pointedly that the trust measures would increase inequality. Not a dicky bird out of them when Rishi was wasting £400 billion on furlough. But with my best Velma hat on, you know, in tribute to my co-pilot, I went to have a look at this. So the IMF is ticking us off. Liam, the UK has the second lowest, I don't know why I'm telling you this, you know this, but the UK has got the second lowest ratio of public debt to GDP in the G7 countries. I'm nodding obediently and looking as if I'm learning something. Really? Wow. Occasionally, (laughs) I like to sort of, you know, you said to me last week that I was coming on. You are coming on. You turn into the Frankenstein economist. I've created a (laughs) Franken economist where you you berate me about things that I've told you are true. I know. Don't you understand, Liam? Don't you realise? You know me because I find them out for the first time. I'm absolutely outraged. So there's us with our debt to GDP of 88%, lower than Canada, 102%. France, 113%. The United States, 126%. Italy, 151%. And Japan, 262%. So, Liam Halligan, why are the United Kingdom called up to the front of the class to get the ruler off the IMF? What's going on? Are we being made an example of? I mean, is it political? I mean, they all hate us because of Brexit. Do you think there's a shadow of Brexit in all of this? I think for quite a few years, the kind of international jet-setting policy-making class has had a downer on the UK. I also think they're the kind of people who get really sick and tired of years and years and years of Conservative government because the Conservatives aren't generally their people. Joe Biden is very much from the opposite side of the political tracks to Liz Truss. They couldn't really be more different. He's a sort of ageing Democrat and she's a young, thrusting, red in tooth and claw Conservative, so they're not going to do each other any favours. But I think it's about more than that. It's not just about the level of debt that you're financing. What you told me there, which is interesting, the markets have known that for months. What's important is the rate of change of borrowing, the volume of new borrowing, and a judgment about whether or not the market will swallow your new borrowing, and if so, at what rate of interest. And there is clearly something going on that the market thinks that sterling borrowing is not a good deal at the moment to buy that sovereign debt. Now, it was partly because the Bank of England was also flooding the market with new gilts, as the government's debt management office was flooding the market with new gilts. It's also because sterling is weak, so people are taking a currency hit when they lend in sterling. But these sentiments can very, very quickly reverse. If sterling is down and there's a sense, oh, oh, it's been oversold, it could go up, then suddenly those gilts get really attractive because if you buy the gilt, then you get the currency upside as well as the currency recovers. So I think a lot of this is about financial markets seeing how far they can push the Bank of England. This is just as it was when we were trying to stay in the exchange rate mechanism in the early 90s at a rate that was unsustainably high. Now, there isn't a fixed exchange rate now. We can't fall out of the ERM the way we did back then because the currency is, by definition, flexible. We aren't in a fixed exchange rate system anymore. Having said that, I think if we approach parity again, $1 equals £1, 
that doesn't really matter in the grand scheme of things. The currency is there as a valve, right? And if the currency gets lower, your exports get more competitive, you earn more or, you know, on your external balances, the so-called balance of payments when you trade with the rest of the world. But the virility symbol of one pound going below one dollar could be so painful for the government, they might try and force the Bank of England to defend that line in the sand, if you like. And if they try and do that, that would be a disaster. But it may be that currency traders in a coordinated way are trying to push the government into that kind of a corner. I was just going to say that Margaret Thatcher, I think, famously said that if sterling did hit parity with the dollar, she called that the point of no return. Something else I wanted to ask you is during the leadership campaign, Rishi Sunak warned that Liz Truss's plans for tax cuts at this kind of point really were dangerous. And we're now obviously having a lot of Sunak supporters, Remainers saying that he's been vindicated. But the thing that strikes me, Liam, about this thing they call the trust gamble, this plan for growth is what's the alternative? We are heading for a very serious recession. What's it going to be? Higher taxes, collapsing public services. We all know the state of the health service. We've got a tinier and tinier cake with, you know, thinner and thinner slices being given, stagnant productivity. So it's being called a gamble. But what are the alternatives? I mean, do you think the Chancellor should consider postponing tax cuts? Does he need to explain before November how they're going to be funding all these things? I do think, Alison, that the government's going to have to say something substantial before the 23rd of November. That's the date, as the currency was falling, that the Treasury gave for its next sort of proper big financial statement with costings from the Office for Budget Responsibility and so on. I do think they'll be forced to say something before that. And I think the Bank of England will need to be more on the front foot giving speeches where they look down the barrel of the camera and say, we really are going to solve inflation. We really are prepared to raise interest rates as much as we need to in order to squeeze inflation out of the system. So-called jawboning, as you call it, trying to talk the markets into a calmer situation, trying to convey to them the seriousness of your intent. I think if the Chancellor is forced to reverse a top rate of tax cut and the Prime Minister, then you may be in resignation territory. I hate to say it because the <laughs> two of them you know, have barely got their knees under the table. You know, one of them is going to have to resign and it's not going to be Liz Truss, right? And I say that with regret because I do think Kwasi Kwarteng is a clever guy but I do think he should have stopped whoever advised him or if it was his own idea, he should have not had this idea to cut the top rate of tax. That was always going to make it politically easy to portray the government as reckless, playing fast and loose with the public finances, putting ideology over prudence, which is not what you want to do when the public finances are clearly going to come into a difficult situation post-COVID, post-lockdown, as you say, with the economy slowing, the UK net energy importer just about to implement an energy price cap with basically an open-ended price ticket. In that sense, it's not that the top rate of tax couldn't be lower at 40. It was 40 during all the new Labour years, bar a couple of months yeah. at the end when Gordon Brown raised it in order to wind the Conservatives up because they'll get a hard time when they reversed it. So it's not that a 40% top rate of tax is immoral. It's just that the timing was woefully inept. Liam, you've been in 
Liverpool this week for the Labour Party conference, gifted this marvellous advantage by, by the Trust government. They began by singing the national anthem. Nobody booed. People are talking about the most successful Labour conference since Tony Blair. Starmer actually referenced Blair both overtly and obliquely, I think, in his speech. He was coming across a lot better as far as I could see. A Telegraph sketch writer, Tim Stanley, called it the week that politics changed. Keir Starmer's speech shows Labour is not the mad option. I mean, given the prevailing lunacy, they did start to look quite sane, didn't they? What was your feeling of the mood on the ground? Well, Tim's an astute observer of politics, and I think he's right. The Labour Party, at conference at least, they seem to have expelled a lot of the more difficult people, the Corbynistas. The people there were clearly Starmer supporters, lots of them there, and a lot of the front bench now. They want to be in power. They want to be in office. They're on sort of gaff alert, trying not to say stupid things that take attention away from the leadership. The policy offering was moderate for the most part, when Keir Starmer in his speech talked about financial responsibility and prudent budgetary management, he got sort of, you know, round of applause. That's exactly what Labour does want to convey. I do think we're now at the point where the Labour Party is starting to pass the sniff test in the sense that it's not scaring the living daylights out of middle Britain, if you like. Rachel Reeves is a credible character as Shadow Chancellor, as I often said. I think she's a bit low wattage. I think she needs to up her game in terms of sort of leadership and pizzazz. But she's certainly got the credentials as pretty much our only senior politician from any party who's actually worked at the Bank of England. So it may be that the fact that Labour are gaining the opinion polls way ahead of the Tories on some polls, plus this sense of financial mismanagement and endless blood-curdling headlines about sterling, it may be that that really does start to put pressure on Liz Truss's government from her own side. One of the biggest bits of news I took from Labour conference Alison wasn't about the Labour Party at all. It was that some Conservative MPs, even now, have started to putting letters to Sir Graham Brady, the chairman of the 1922 committee. <laughs> we could, at some stage soon, don't shoot the messenger, have another Conservative leadership election. In February 1981, co-pilot, Michael Foote leading the Labour Party had a 16-point lead over the Conservative Party. And you will know, Liam, that in March 1981, 364 economists wrote a letter to the Times opposing Geoffrey Howe's budget, very, very unhappy about how radical it was. This Thatcherite approach disrupted the status quo. But as we know, that budget, that much contested budget, was a turning point in the UK's fortunes. And Labour didn't win that election. But the Conservative Party conference next week is going to be very interesting, isn't it? Embarrassment or bloodbath, co-pilot. Hello, I'm Christopher Hope, but my pals call me Chopper. And you can too. Just dropping into my second favourite podcast to tell you about another Telegraph show. Mine! As a Telegraph's chief political correspondent, I spend my days holding politicians to account and asking them about the things that affect you. 
I speak to the top politicians from across the political spectrum, commentators with their finger on the pulse, and of course, my talented colleagues at The Telegraph. So if that sounds like your cup of tea, please search Chopper's Politics, wherever you're listening to this. Cheerio! Clambering aboard the rocket this week is one of the UK's leading economists, Dr Gerard Lyons. Formerly Chief Economist at Standard Chartered Bank, Gerard has a wealth of experience working in financial markets across the world. A proud Londoner, he hasn't just one, but three degrees in economics, having completed his PhD at Queen Mary. But Gerard also has a well-deserved reputation for lucid broadcasting and newspaper commentary about the economy, regularly contributing to a host of titles, not least The Telegraph. A former candidate to be Governor of the Bank of England, Jared Lyons is currently Chief Economic Strategist at NetWealth, among other posts. He was also, Alison, Chief Economic Advisor to Boris Johnson when the former Prime Minister was Mayor of London, and he helped to advise Liz Trust during her leadership campaign. That rarest of beasts, a dismal scientist who writes and speaks clearly, I started by asking Jared Lyons if we really are in the midst of a sterling crisis. Well, it's not yet a sterling crisis. We've had a sterling crisis in the past when we've tried to defend an artificial band or artificial peg, such as 1992. This is close to a sterling crisis, but the important thing is that the currency has the ability to be flexible, but it's not far away from it. But what we've seen in the last few days is more than sterling. It's across the whole plethora of UK markets. And I think the real reason for it is that ahead of the mini budget last week, it seems to be that number 10 and number 11 in particular focused on two domestic audiences, the general public and UK businesses, hence the Institute of Directors and the Confederation of British Industry, for instance, like the mini budget. But they failed to do anything to bring the market consensus, the financial markets with them, prepare them. And in the last few weeks, I was warning that they should be doing this. So... In terms of your question, it's as close to a sterling crisis as one can get. Let's see how it pans out the last few days. But it has raised credibility about UK policy and it's affected UK gilts and UK financial markets generally more than just sterling. Do you think the markets are being rational? Of course, they're often irrational. There's a lot of hyperbole, a lot of fear and greed, as we say. But the UK's sovereign debt, the government's debt, is still pretty low by the standards of other large industrialised nations. What's going on here, Jerry? Was this really about Kwasi Kwarteng's tax cuts or is this about the fact that the Bank of England for so many months has been, as economists say, behind the curve? I think the markets have overreacted. But the reality of the situation is that the markets and the economic consensus was in a different space to where the government really needed them to be. But in terms of your question, Lee, it's very interesting. I was a supporter of, quite frankly, the bulk of the mini budget last Friday. Obviously, I I wasn't privy to what was in it. There were aspects of it that I didn't think were necessary. For instance, the cut of the top rate of income tax, um, one or two other things. But if we look at last Friday, what it really signalled was an energy levy that was actually going to take the pressure off the general public and off businesses and put that risk onto the government in terms of government borrowing. And 82%, so 82 pence of every pound borrowed of the rest of the fiscal package 
was basically reversing two tax increases, the incorporation tax increase and the national insurance tax increase. So basically fixing the energy cap, that price levy, and reversing those two tax increases was necessary. And it basically prevented a deep recession. And a deep recession would have blown the public finances out of the water. What one needed to see last Friday was a fiscal package that was necessary, I think it was, that was non-inflationary. And given the nature of our inflation shock, which is supply side factors because of the pandemic and because of the war in Ukraine and because of poor monetary policy, but not an inflation environment because of the overheating domestic economy, the fiscal easing was not inflationary. And I thought the bulk of the fiscal easing was affordable. What the Chancellor needed to do was to convince the markets that the fiscal easing was necessary, non-inflationary and affordable. I think the markets have overreacted, but one or two aspects, as we've seen last Friday, failed to land, failed to be communicated. But on top of that, the whole issue about monetary policy can't be ignored, given where we've been in recent years. You were tipped as a possible governor of the Bank of England not so long ago. If you were Governor of the Bank of England or on the Monetary Policy Committee, would you have been supporting going further than they have in the last couple of days? We've seen a statement from the Governor, a pretty bland statement, no emergency interest rate rise, no real explanation from the Treasury, referring the markets to the 23rd of November when there'll be some more detail in terms of how the public finances are going to add up. Everyone understands that the government and the Bank of England don't want to be seen to be panicked. That could be counterproductive. But isn't this a little bit laid back, their response? All right. I think the Bank of England has a self-made credibility gap and is very poor at communicating. When you are on the verge of a crisis or in the middle of this market sort of semi-meltdown in some respects, the ability to communicate and get your message across clearly is vitally important. The bank hasn't really been able to communicate properly in normal times, and I don't think they've responded as effectively as they should. Let me answer your question in a bit more detail. And can I take it in three stages? The backdrop, second, what's happened over the last year, and what should happen now? Because I think the backdrop is really vitally important to understand not only why we are in a situation now, but quite frankly, why Western Europe is an economic mess now. Since the 2008 global financial crisis, monetary policy has become the shock absorber. By that, I mean we've had cheap money and interest rate cuts in response to practically any crisis or any shock. Since 2008, we've lived with cheap money. Cheap money has done this is added to asset price inflation, including higher property prices. It's led financial markets to not price properly for risk. It's led to an inefficient allocation of capital, including zombie firms remaining in business. And it's led in recent years to an environment where inflation could take hold. We need to move away from cheap money. And that's why trust economics, if you can call it that, is about fiscal policy stabilizing the economy in the near term and allowing monetary policy to take account of inflation. But that leads on to the second point about where we've been in the last year and a half. At the beginning of last year, I was arguing, as indeed you were, Liam, that inflation was set to take hold. We had a backdrop where inflation was set to rise. It was quite clear at the time. The economy was also about to recover. And monetary policy then was very cheap. It was quite clear at the beginning of 2021 that the Bank of England should have tightened monetary policy 
in the gradual and predictable way because the economy would have coped, it would have gone top of inflation, but they did the opposite. They eased monetary policy through quantitative easing. That was the wrong environment. And then we move up to now where the bank, the third phase, the first since 2008, second since last year, the third where we are now. So the Bank of England needed to be ahead of the curve as the US Fed has been in recent months. At the end of last year, the Fed got on top of this by in terms of not only its actions, but its communications. The Bank of England has not done this. Before Trust became Prime Minister, the markets were expecting UK interest rates to go to four and a quarter to four and a half. Now, since the events of last week, the markets expect rate to go up even further and even sooner. We now are in this difficult situation where in recent weeks, the markets knew that if rates didn't go up, sterling was vulnerable. This was even before the mini budget. But they also knew that if rates did go up, the economy would take a hit. So basically, the speed, the scale and the sequencing of monetary policy tightening needs to be sensitive to both the economy's performance and now, particularly since last Friday, to the mood of the market. That means that the Bank of England does need to get ahead of the curve, but they mustn't aggressively keep tightening policy and go and autopilot because it's not just markets, it's the economy that's sensitive. What I would like the bank to do is reverse the quantitative tightening they announced last Thursday. Even though I was against last year's quantitative easing, every policy needs to be judged in the context of the time. So their market intelligence seems to be really lacking, to be quite frank. Jerry, you talk about a self-made credibility gap that the Bank of England's created. I think you're being a bit too diplomatic. You and I know that for you know, nine months, the Bank of England was insisting inflation was transitory when clearly it wasn't. Several times the Bank of England has had the chance to move in a determined fashion on interest rates, and it always seems to have lacked the courage to do so. I would say last week's decision to not raise by 75 basis points was unforgivable. You had people on the Monetary Policy Committee arguing for a 25 and voting for a 25 basis points rise, which is, I would say, economically illiterate. All right, there's a whole host of issues here. Managing market expectations is critical. As the Fed shows you can do it well, the bank shows you can't always do it well. At the beginning of last year, I argued which P was it? Would inflation pass through quickly, persist, or become permanent? At that time, I didn't think the pickup of inflation would be permanent because post this crisis, we would still see global competitive pressures. But I did think that the pickup in inflation we saw at the beginning of last year would persist and therefore monetary policy tightening was necessary at the beginning of last year. Now, the Bank of England, whose sole job it is to control inflation, arrogantly at that time thought it would pass through and pass through quickly. So they've been proved wrong. But if I could bring us to the broader debate, Liam, what we're seeing in terms of trust approach to economics, and I do think that they mishandled the communication over the mini budget. And also I thought in the mini budget that they needn't have gone ahead with some of those tax changes outside of a major budget announcement, just so that you'd need the backdrop to convince the markets that the fiscal numbers add up. Unfortunately, the medium term fiscal plan should have been there last week if there was no OBR statement last week. But in terms of fiscal policy, it's about using fiscal policy to stabilise the economy at the moment. The UK economy currently 
like much of Western Europe actually, faces a twin challenge, higher inflation and weaker domestic demand. That's why it's possible to have fiscal easing to address the weaker domestic demand without exacerbating those inflation worries. I would say that tax cuts or fiscal easing more generally does not need to be the opposite end of the same seesaw to interest rates going up. And that's because of the nature of the inflation shock. The nature of the inflation shock has been, as I say, both supply side factors and inappropriate monetary policy. So coming back to monetary policy, eventually we need to get to back to emergency levels being replaced by normal levels of interest rates. But the path that the bank chooses to take now has to be very sensitive to both the markets as well as the economy's performance. But coming back to your question, yeah, they've been in the wrong space for too long. And the challenge is that when you're in the wrong space for too long and when you lack credibility, you might not always get the path right in terms of getting back to credibility. It's a difficult situation. There's an awful lot in that answer, Jerry. And, you know, we're two professional economists talking and for a lot of people across the country trying to follow this, it is very complex. I would summarise, if I may, what you've said in the following way. I would say that we were in a a world after the financial crisis where monetary policy was very, very loose with all that quantitative easing and ultra-low interest rates and fiscal policy was tighter because then the priority was growth. Now the priority is really bearing down on inflation. That's switching round. We're going from loose money, tight fiscal policy to tighter money, raising interest rates and to looser fiscal policy with tax cuts and a bit more spending. Making that policy mix switch was always going to be a very turbulent and dangerous time. But that's roughly where we are. And I think we're both saying that in the round, that is the switch that needs to happen. I would actually say it's all within the context of a pro-growth economic strategy. The only way the UK can actually manage people's expectations with first-class funded public services and tax rates that remain relatively low is to have economic growth. But there needs to be three pillars to a successful economic policy. And whether this government succeeds or not depends on those three pillars really being firmly entrenched. You could actually say three arrows and they need to get three bullseyes. One arrow is monetary policy must be credible and must keep inflation in check. The second arrow is fiscal policy must be credible, stabilising the economy now, but in time, fiscal discipline, keeping public spending under control and allowing taxes to remain low. And the third arrow, vitally important, is supply side. All the eyes, investment, not just in plant, but in people. Innovation, particularly from our universities. More infrastructure spending, changing solvency too, to allow UK insurance companies and others to invest in our infrastructure and incentives, incentives of low taxation and smart regulation. And then you get the other eye right, you get inequality being brought under control. But all of that is within a pro-growth strategy. As we've seen in last week, you need monetary policy to play its part and you need fiscal policy to play its part, but you need also to take the markets with you and explain it. But the bulk of the statement was on the right path. Now it has created a sort of gap in terms of where policy currently is and where the expectations are. And that makes it doubly difficult. But the pro-growth strategy has to have those three key foundations that I've mentioned. 
Jerry, just in the last couple of minutes, let's talk about the mortgage market. It does seem to me pretty alarming that we've got a lot of people on fixed rate mortgages now that are going to come up for renewal over the next year or so. They might have fixed when the base rate was a quarter percent, half percent, one percent. They're now going to be fixing when the base rate could be, you know, four, five percent plus. That is a punishing change, isn't it? Is this going to feel like a kind of post-1992 situation when the Tories lose their reputation for economic credibility? Well, post-92, most people forget that interest rates came down sharply and the economy rebounded. What they remember is the sort of emergency announcements of, on the day of higher rates. It's quite interesting. Effectively, the economy is very sensitive to interest rate moves because we've become used to cheap money. Just to clarify, I think that eventually we need to get back to credible monetary policy with high levels of rates. I don't think we should be on autopilot to raise rates aggressively, sharply, immediately. We need to tread very carefully. And as I say, the speed, the scale and the sequencing of monetary policy tightening needs to be sensitive to all the people you're mentioning in terms of the mortgage market, the economy more generally. There's little doubt that the direction of travel of interest rates is going to be up. That's why people need to be mindful of that. The property market is normally vulnerable if interest rates go higher or if the unemployment rate goes higher. Thankfully, the economy still has a pretty strong labour market with low unemployment. But it's the interest rate level that's going up. Also, property values are pretty elevated at the moment. There were changes made in the mini budget. Whether they should have been made there or otherwise remains to be seen. But those changes on stamp duty were aimed not only at helping first-time buyer but include increasing turnover in the mortgage market. But coming back to those people, as they come off fixed rates, I'm not here to give advice, obviously, in terms of this. You need to have lots of checks and balances on that. But it's quite clear, looking at this in broad terms, interest rates are heading higher. Long-term rates have gone up globally, but particularly in the UK in the last week. So that will make it difficult for people as they move off fixed rates. But this is another consideration that policymakers need to take into account. So rates need to go back to normal. They can't go on autopilot from where we are now to there. It's like two wrongs don't make a right. The Bank of England was wrong in terms of how it handled policy last year. It, we don't want it to be wrong by just sort of being too aggressive now just to try and prove it's tough. It needs to be sensitive. The direction of travel is for rates to go up, but they need to move carefully. Dr. Cherry Lyons, thanks a lot for joining us on Planet Normal. So that was Jared Lyons, and I wanted to add that Dr. Lyons has his own podcast that he co-presents jointly with his daughter, the comedian Elf Lyons, and it's named, rather aptly, What the Hell is Economics? <laughs> Something I'm forced to ask every week. I thought he was very, very interesting. Was he being slightly disingenuous? We know he's been very close to Liz Truss, don't we? He was saying he wasn't privy to what they were going to announce in that so-called mini budget. How much do you think he did actually know, Liam? No, I think that's right. You know, I know Jared Lyons well. I've written a book with Jared Lyons, I should declare that. And he was giving Liz Truss some advice during the leadership campaign, but he wasn't involved in the details of the mini budget. He couldn't possibly be Alison because he's not employed by the government and to have been involved in those details 
There are laws about things like that. Somebody who works in the financial markets knowing about a budget statement or any kind of financial event beforehand. So, no, I completely believe, Gerard, there's no reason why he'd be disingenuous about that. And he said in his interview, didn't he, that he was against the top rate of tax coming down. And I think that's because, you know, he's got fantastic education, fantastic degrees. He's an Irish guy from Kilburn in northwest London. He's a streetwise person who does understand how ordinary people think and feel, in my experience. And that's why, okay, he's a friend of mine, but I do think he should be seriously involved in policymaking. No, I think he's great. Um, now, before we go on to emails, just wanted to mention something I wrote about in the column this week, which got Telegraph readers very interested. You'll have seen, Liam, that Georgia Maloney became the first female prime minister of Italy. She's the leader of the Brothers of Italy party. Now, I, I was really intrigued by this because everywhere you looked, all the headlines, all the announcements on the BBC, Georgia Maloney was being described as far right. And yet I look back at a great speech she gave in 2019, where she actually quoted GK Chesterton Liam, the English writer, theologian, sage. She quoted him from a 100 years ago. And this is GK Chesterton, who was known as the apostle of common sense. And Georgia Maloney was talking about common sense. And she said, fires will be kindled to testify that two and two make four. Swords will be drawn to prove that leaves are green in summer. That time has arrived. We are ready. Now, her speech went viral. She fought back against identity politics, against sort of gender issues. She said that they didn't want to be called parent one, parent two, gender LGBT, citizen X with code numbers. And she said, we are not code numbers. We will defend our identity. I am Georgia. I am a woman. I am a mother. I am Italian. I am Christian. And the thing that struck me, Liam, was that obviously we have to take seriously this idea that her party has been tainted in the past with, with fascism. But it seemed to me that she represents mainstream conservative values. And I was kind of interested in the way that far right, what are actually mainstream centre-right, values have been rebranded as far right and fascism. And I'm often called, you know, fascist, me, me, fascist on social media. But I think it's very interesting. And I think that she is fighting back against this stifling orthodoxy that says that people who have mainstream traditional values of the centre-right are going to be called fascist. And just to finish off that G.K. Chesterton quote, we shall be left defending the incredible virtues and sanities of human life. And I think if Planet Normal had a patron saint, I don't think we could do better than G.K. Chesterton because we are in the business co-pilot of defending the incredible virtues and sanities of human life. Well, G.K. Chesterton could be our patron saint, of course, but no one could say that we haven't spoken yet because, of course, we're extremely gobby. <laughs> I'd say to listeners that they can read your amazing column, which include the section on the Italian election via the link in the show notes to this episode. And they can also read the section of your column where you try and claim that the kitchen island... <laughs> is no longer. You've turned it into the sort of equivalent of the <laughs> 1970s hostess trolley saying it's going out of fashion. And Alison, I'm accusing you here and now, amidst our planet normal citizenry, that you wrote that column based on my <laughs> kitchen. 
Listen, everyone's got the same kitchen island with the three pendant lights above it, the, the same faux marble surface. You know what John Dunn said about this, Liam? No woman is a kitchen island entire of itself. One woman's loss of kitchen island diminishes me. And therefore, never send to know for whom the kitchen bell tolls. It tolls for thee. <laughs> Now on to our fantastic listener emails. We've got a particularly great crop this week. Christopher says, thank you for your generous words regarding the army and Grenadier Guards. Some might have seen the state funeral as a symbol of hereditary privilege and inequality, but others watched through tears of pride. Pride that eight normal young men were, briefly, the face of the nation. Pride that those at the most junior levels of an organisation could be trusted to take the late monarch on her final journey. Proud that barriers of class and privilege, barriers between the living and the dead, barriers of rank and the challenges of media scrutiny could all be transcended by a group of people who believed in something greater than themselves. Having the monarchy and young soldiers united in ceremony was a subtle expression of inclusivity and pluralism. Tradition and privilege and modernity and dignity aren't mutually exclusive. They can reinforce each other. In the final analysis, we really can work together for our wider society. The guardsmen and sergeants mess members are the most incredible people one could meet. Time at the world's finest universities or global corporates cannot hold a candle to time spent alongside these soldiers. Thank you for advocating on behalf of those who rarely speak beneath their bearskin caps. And Christopher adds, as an aside, I am now a postgraduate at Yale before starting at McKinsey's. I'm doing some research on urban poverty and economic development. It goes without saying that co-pilot Halligan's work on supply-side housing reform represents essential reading. Someone's bought your book. Many people have bought my book. <laughs> So this is from Dr. Claire, a regular Planet Normal correspondent, responding to Health Secretary Trez Coffey's saying that GPs must meet a deadline of two weeks for a face-to-face -face appointment. In my opinion, says Dr. Claire, two weeks is appallingly bad. It should be two days. GP services are dreadful. We need more GPs, especially as so much hospital work's being dumped on us and no secondary care's available. GPs need to be made to do all face-to-face -face appointments. This telephone triage is rubbish. It means double the number of appointments needed for initial consultation and then face-to-face -face afterwards. I refuse to do telephone appointments. I insist on seeing every patient, says Dr. Clare, unless it's just a prescription query or asking for results. Much quicker and I can deal with a lot more patients. This week I personally had tests for cancer and had an appalling problem getting the results myself. A terrible chase around. I had to ring my useless GP three times, each time number 20 or more in the queue and half an hour wait to speak to somebody. Then they say they'll call back and then they don't. I would never treat patients in this way. It's heartless. It's totally uncaring. I can't believe what general practice has come to. This is from Martin. Six hours, the wait in A&E for my 89-year-old mother, bleeding from a head wound, sustained after falling in the street. Two years, the wait for an NHS hip replacement for my wife, in constant debilitating pain and incapable of picking up her new grandchild. Six to nine months, the wait to see a consultant for said hip operation. £15,000, how much we're having to raise to go 
Private, 45%, the proportion of my monthly take-home pay allocated to the Treasury, excluding indirect tax, of course. Absolutely, Martin. And that's what we're talking about, Liam, behind all this very high-flown economic vocabulary is people, ordinary people, paying tax and not having public services that work. And we've had a huge amount of response to the, what are we doing if we're definitely not turning the heating on until November? What recourse do we have, citizens of Planet Normal? Clive says, acquired our fourth terrier as the bed is king size and the training period is short. It's a very, very dog-themed remedies here. Peter says, greyhounds, they give good coverage and give out massive amounts of heat, much better than terriers at night. If it wasn't for the flatulence, they would be the birds. Perfect solution. Anne says, I'm warm and snug in a bed with a Yorkshire Terrier and a Shih Tzu, one on each side. And Richard says, this is really interesting, Liam, I didn't know this. Richard says, a really cold night is known as a three dog night, hence the name of the group. Now, I didn't know that. That's fascinating. And Sue says, we did consider another dog, but we decided that our adult children would have a sectioned if we got any more Jack Russells. So that's it from Planet Normal for another week. As we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reasoned views, email of the week. It's my turn and I'm going to give the email to GP Claire. How brave of her to speak out. Yes, fantastic. If you enjoy Planet Normal, do leave us a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. A lovely man called Nick said this week, who needs to pay £60 for therapy when he can listen to Planet Normal? So please do add to those lovely reviews. And Planet Normal Live is back for its second instalment and you're invited. In May, we recorded our Landmark 100th episode live. And on Wednesday, October the 19th, we're recording live again at the historic IET in central London. Don't miss your chance to climb aboard the rocket of right thinking. That's right. Please join Liam and me. We'll be welcoming two superb guests. The great author, Lionel Shriver, absolutely marvellous talker, and the life peer, Lord Frost, who has been a guest on Planet Normal. Both will be speaking to your co-pilots in person. Expect straight talking, well, from me, not necessarily from Halligan. <laughs> Glass of warm white wine, bit of Planet Normal humour, and you'll have the chance to ask Halligan and me during our question and answer session. Tickets are £30 for Telegraph subscribers and we'll put the link to where you can buy those tickets in the show notes to this episode. And so we speed away from our beloved planet normal and the madness of planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our producers, Isabel Bouchard, Elliot Lampitt, for it is he, and our editor, <laughs> No Hitch with Zoe Hitch. Stay safe in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.